Good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, Ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. Thanks to our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio, and to Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm super excited. Yeah, I this I've been waiting for this. We started talking uh, to Leslie uh, Santos Dirks uh, quite a while ago to get you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here today. And you made the drive down from San Luis Obispo? I did. Always a beautiful drive. Easy oh drive to do. Oh my gosh, right? The it, most spectacular coastline, I feel. I love it. Yeah. Happy to make the drive anytime. Earlier uh, <laughs> this morning, we had someone uh, who rode their motorcycle up from Westlake. Less attractive. <laughs> I, I, until they hit Ventura and, and you That's come true. up. But I think when you, for the, we have listeners all over the world. I've got, uh, I think we're at 120 in Venezuela that's now. Outstanding. Hola, that's <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Hola, right? Yeah. right? We made it onto a, a, a best business podcast, top 10 business podcasts in Venezuela. Wow, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, so, uh, which is interesting. I've been to mm-hmm. Caracas once in my life 30 years ago. Uh, but the part of California we're talking about is spectacularly beautiful and part of the reason that people come here. Yeah, I travel all over the world, and every single time, I'll sit somewhere and I say, it's beautiful, but not as beautiful as home. I feel so lucky. Have you lived here your whole life? No, I am actually, well, let's see, where should we start? My parents are San Luis Obispo natives. Okay. And so, but then they went, they met in high school, went to the prom together, then went down to LA to college, got married, had me. And so I was raised primarily in San Diego and Orange County. And then by, you know, and I would always come visit my grandparents in San Luis Obispo. So sure. it's always been part of my history. But then by a weird series, twists and turns, I ended up in San Luis Obispo. I never, ever thought I would live in San Luis Obispo. What, what, got, what got you back? <laughs> well, originally it was marrying a man who had gone to Cal Poly. Uh-huh. And so he had a common history here. Because, you know, growing up in San Diego, when I would tell people I'm going to San Luis Obispo to see my grandparents, people would look at me as if, where's that? Where are you going? Nobody is off the map. And um, so then I met a boy who was wearing a Cal Poly San Luis Obispo hat. That's actually how we struck up our conversation. (laughs) Nice (laughs) hat. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know San Luis Obispo? (laughs) And uh, so then we got married, and we were part of the Silicon Valley Rush. And so we actually left L.A. What is the Silicon Valley Rush? You know, way back in the big tech boom when they were recruiting left and right back in the late 90s. And so um, we went up to the Bay Area, and then uh, I had trouble having children. It came to a point in my life when we wanted to have kids. And so Mm. when I was finally successful, I really felt a need to be close to my family, to have support system. As much as I loved my Bay Area life, it was a long ways from mom and dad and brother and and family. And so uh, we decided to move to San Luis Obispo, which was always a place we went for weekend getaways. Both of our families had weekend homes there. Right. And so it allowed us to telecommute to our jobs in the Bay Area but our parents could come into town regularly and stay in their homes, and it was almost like being home with them. Nice. Yeah, and so that's, and then we just never left. We never, <laughs> <laughs> I thought we actually were heading back down to San Diego. That was my goal, but now I'm pretty darn happy. W- what, did you st- what, what did you study in school? What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, 
Uh, well, I have a degree in journalism, public relations, and a degree in art history, and I wanted to be the executive director of the Getty Museum. Now, this was before the Getty Center, when it was the villa in Malibu. Right, right. That was my dream. I loved antiquities really? art. That's what I wanted to do, and so I felt public funding was being pulled away from our cultural institutions and our museums, right, and I felt right. it was public apathy that was the issue. That's why I added on public relations, because I thought that's the way that we're going to make mm. sure that oh, the public gets behind supporting, yeah, our, they need to oh. know the value, right? And then um, I was uh, doing some PR work and uh, started interviewing to get back into the museum field, trying to decide actually if I want to get a master's in museum administration, and someone, a very wonderful, valuable mentor of mine said, look, if you really care about museums, you're going to have to learn how to raise money for them. That's, that's what you're oh. going to have to do. Mm-hmm. So there I... Is that something you can... Go, is there a class in that? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I wish. There should be. At the time, I went to USC, and so I had done internships at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, and then across the way from Ex- Exposition Park was the California Museum of Science and Industry that sure, was of course. just starting its campaign to become the now California Science Center. Right. And so um, a contact, again, a mentor at the Natural History Museum connected me with someone at the Science Center, the museum at the time. And I switched gears and started doing the capital campaign, started working on that capital campaign. At how old, what, 20? Uh, right out of college. So I was probably 23 by the time I started working because I had one other stint. A professor had recruited me out of, uh, college to come work for her PR firm. I when she said art history, I saw you light up, co-host yeah. Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, I'm 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 an artist, and and so oh, neat. yeah, and so I I love hearing that 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 was I was gonna I was gonna chime in there and say you still have time to be the head of the Getty. There's still a chance. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe we'll see. Yeah. And it's funny because I'm not an artist. I mean, I, I think I had to go the art history route because I desperately tried as oh. a young child to be an artist, and I I distinctly recall one teacher telling me that. Maybe I should consider more sports or some other I activities. Will, I will hunt that teacher down. That is a terrible, that is terrible <laughs> advice to give a child. It's okay. Everything yeah. turned out just right. Yeah. But it was. But I love. I do. I have such an admiration for people who are able to express themselves in the visual media, as especially in the creative in the creative world or in the the, the art world. Uh, we we are lacking quality advocates uh, who are in, engaged in that way that say that that looking like like your mentor who said you should raise money for a museum. That's how you could really help. Um, that is what we are we're constantly lacking. Our, our critic base has fallen away as it's become uh, hard to monetize a, a critic career, mm. um, and it's just it's very difficult for uh, contemporary museums uh, to maintain their operating budgets. Uh, using contemporary art, so instead they, they fall back to to art that is not as kind of um, I don't know thought provoking and and, and conversation uh, enhancing. So yeah, I think it's a symptom of the lack of independent thinking we have th- yeah. nowadays in our culture because now everyone's looking for art to be validated mm-hmm. before they can appreciate it. Almost right. does that make right. sense? They yeah, yeah. Exi- well, well, give me an example of that. Well, I the you know the contemporary and modern art you know they're they're challenging our conceptions of what is art and I, I think a lot of the general public the lay people struggle with that sometimes Dude, that's not art so what is that type thing and it doesn't line up with my previous experience of what i consider art exactly yeah. and yet I, I think that's the most fascinating part of art is that <laughs> folks are redefining the way we look at our world and the way that we express ourselves but everyone else is looking for an expert to tell them that's beautiful does that make sense yeah it does as opposed to what what feels good for you and and wouldn't that be nice to have so many different options that you could find something, everyone could find something they could relate to in a collection at a museum? 
but it doesn't always work that way because everyone seems to be it's culturally I've noticed looking next to each other or on what Facebook. What do you think? Yeah. What do, do you, you like think? this? Should Pe- I like this? Uh, People are very fearful of being wrong and getting it wrong. And, and and they don't realize that, that their opinion is, is the one thing they can never get wrong. Exactly. Your perspective, my father, love him so much. He's just such a powerhouse for me. And um, he always taught me when he was very ill, fought cancer and always said, you know, your perspective is the one thing no one can ever take away from you. No illness can ever take away from you. Nothing, you know, it's, it is, it is who we are. And yet people give it up so freely. Mm-hmm. Drives mm-hmm. me bonkers. You go from school up to, back to slow, then up to the Bay Area. No, I'm sorry. I went from LA to the Bay Area. Got it. Down and to did slow. you go up to work in nonprofits and work in art museums? No. Um, so there were no opportunities like the California Science Center and the Bay Area when we were heading up there. My husband at the time were no longer um, married. He's still a wonderful co-parent and friend of mine. Um, went to go work for a technology company, but I went to go find a development job. Sure. And so I ended up working for a small business college for a little while. And I didn't love that. <laughs> academia and fundraising and academia, it's a, it's a different um, environment. And I found it really challenging. And so I was always, I, I always tried to be an active volunteer. And in one of my volunteer roles, a fellow volunteer was working for a technology company. And they were looking for someone to help them do their corporate philanthropy programs. And oh. she said, I was frankly complaining about my job and saying I need to look for something different. Right. But I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and she said, would you consider doing something on the other side of the funding table? And doing the corporate work for company. the funder mm-hmm, exactly, and I oh. didn't actually didn't love the idea at first because oh. I felt like it was selling out a little bit. Ooh. There's a part of you in your fundraiser, your your um, there's a, a kind of an ego that gets involved where you can say, if a donor chooses not to support your program, all right, well, your loss. I'm really proud of the work we're doing. This was a wonderful opportunity for you to be involved in this really special program or whatever it might be. So your loss, but I get to kind of keep my pride. Right. And, and I was worried about going to the other side of the table and being that person who misses out on opportunities. I wasn't quite sure that I would love the work as much. I know that sounds strange, but that was... No, no, it doesn't sound strange y- at all. You what? might be directed by your corporation not to give exactly. money to something you might believe in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What turned you? Uh, the company itself. So I went to go work with Adobe Systems, and I suppose very directly it was my immediate supervisor, the person who hired me at the time, um, who... I was able to be really direct and honest about my concerns. And she um, explained to me that the founders, uh, Chuck Geschke and John Warnock, who were still very active at the time, were tremendous personal philanthropists. And I began to see that this was um, a cultural value uh, that Mm. was woven throughout the organization. And it wasn't going to be strictly marketing. You know, there's Different corporations approach philanthropy and cause-related marketing with different intentions. And theirs was truly to make their community stronger, to support their employees, to you know make a real difference in people's lives. And that they personally um, were such active philanthropists, and we were just kind of carrying on that tradition. And that was exciting. I wanted to learn more about that. How was that? They had done well, so they, they could be mm-hmm. philanthropic. How did that core value get communicated through the thousands of employees at Adobe? Well, very directly, because 
Adobe, and again, you know, it's been several years since I've been there, but historically when I was there, our philanthropic focus was defined by our employees. We asked them, what are the critical issues in your community for you, for your family? Where would you like to see Adobe invest? So they felt very engaged. We, and we had, in addition to asking them where we're going to invest, you know, the big pots of money, we had philanthropy councils in all of our largest mm. um, uh, employee centers. And so a group of employees was invited to then have a small pool of funds that they could direct. And, um, and then we also had, you know, matching gift programs. And we had, uh, and that was, you, you had to remember, when everyone in the technology boom, we were desperate. Everyone was desperate to get good intellectual property, you know, the right. recruiting process and keeping right. those engineers. And right. so um, the philanthropic programs were actually a huge asset. They it was were a, a benefit. recruiting tool. Mm-hmm. And they, they instilled loyalty. And so when you were, I know the HR department, when they were interviewing, these engineers would be very mindful to point out, we'll support you volunteering. We will support the gifts. You, we will double the gifts that you make. So, like, if, if an employee made a gift to a uh, an after-school program, mm-hmm. Adobe would come behind that and, yep. and double Match it, it up. Okay. Yeah. Was that unique? Um, at the time, there were lots of major technology companies doing that. There was, I will say this, you know, for anyone who might have some opinions about the Silicon Valley, one of the great things about it is that you were supposed to be a good corporate citizen. That was kind of an expectation. That was that was one of the criteria for being a big player. Uh. Now, again, why people, the intent behind it varied from company to company, but everyone was supposed to do something. It was like, I want to be seen as an upright citizen because that's good for the bottom line or that's good. Th- there's all of that as opposed to, that's a nice follow-up, but that's not the goal. Yeah, and the, the kind of, you know, I guess the, I think some people sometimes poke a little fun at Silicon Valley about uh, how everyone's there to change the world through technology. You know, that's the big thing. We're here to change yes. the world. Every Yay. company's changing Let's the world. Let's do that. So <laughs> in order for that to be more sincere, philanthropy played a role within that, too. That's I think that's the what was true. Well, and it's to be very cynical, their tax advisors were saying that to them as well. Maybe. Yes, there were probably, you know, big profits being made, and it made a lot of sense to put it in a foundation for tax purposes. I will say, Adobe, I felt tremendous pride that this was part of the, every one of the companies that Warnock and Geschke ever founded. I mean, every, everything they ever worked for, that was always a key component to what they did. And so that was really a personal value long before it was fashionable or expected. Let's, there's a, I'm going to go, I'm going to a buzzword bingo myself. We play this game. <laughs> uh, where it's, some, it's been too long since you've I, had one, I so you've got to do it yourself. I busted yeah. myself. I was, I was just went to uh, acronym land, uh, CSR, uh-huh. which is Corporate Cor- Social Responsibility, which is a relatively new, re- it's actually a requirement now. Um, so take that era now of being a good corporate citizen what does the where's the how do you i'm going to get this question out for a small business the person who's listening to us now is probably a small to medium-sized business Mm -hmm. where does corporate philanthropy philanthropy and corporate social responsibility fit for them they're adobe big company Mm -hmm. lots of people but how about that smaller company that 
How do how yeah. do they make that work? And it's really hard because they're living on razor thin margins. I mean, our local businesses that aren't part of a major chain, you know, they're working hard yeah, they to are. make their businesses profitable. And that little bit of profit is not a huge margin. It's not like a billion dollar Fortune 500 company. And right. I think we feel that especially in San Luis Obispo, where I I don't want to misquote the numbers, but I think Mike Mancheck, your friend and mine, explained to me that it's like 98 percent of our businesses are um, sole proprietorships. Mm. It's a staggeringly high number. Yeah, yeah. And so I think for them, it's about just being a good neighbor. And it's about doing the okay. best they can. And I think it is a challenge for them. And I think we have to create spaces. And I know that that's something that's important to me, to me too, is to find ways for them to be good neighbors that aren't always monetary. Um, because it is it is really challenging for them to find the funds to do that. And um, they also have limited employee resources. You know, they can't do tons of volunteer hours. What, what employees they have, they need them to work the business. And in our area, we have such a high number of nonprofits, so they're all coming to these small businesses asking for support. Mm -hmm. And I think they're put in this position where it's a small town. You, you, these, you know customers in every one of these organizations asking for support, and I think many times they revert to this kind of peanut butter approach. You know, doing Ooh, a little what's that? Uh, I can, sorry. Is this, is this I the title for our show, The Peanut Butter Approach? Actually, my boss at Adobe coined it. I love it. Diane, Diane Compton, wherever she is. Uh, but actually, she's working for Apple now. Um, but the idea that you take what you have and you spread it oh, got it. out so everyone gets a little bit. And I so appreciate their intent trying to do something for everyone. Yeah. But then as a model for really creating impact, it's tough because it's very shallow, right? And it's different right. than saying, which is what I'll give credit to Adobe, for example, is that they were very clear. No, it's hunger, homelessness, and education. That's what we do. We know there are great environmental programs. We know that there are great arts programs, but we're focused on education, hunger, and homelessness, and we're going we're gonna to invest deeply in those areas to make an impact. Do you As think the nonprofit who's going for that ask would be well served to understand what the three or one thing was from that company? Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's always important to understand how hard it is to run a business on your own and to understand how many other priorities you have and to make it as easy as possible for them to feel good about. I, I think it's important to create a, a variety of entry points. Mm. We'd love to have your cash gift. In lieu of that or in addition or, or alternatively, we'd love to have the ability to um, put some information in your store or to... Uh, uh, have you sponsor one of our events or to provide us with clean or with uh, services or something but we'd love your support what feels best to you what you know how can we work together how can it be mutually I think the key is mutually beneficial mm. and I think too often nonprofits come with this one thing we've got this event we need you to buy tickets right or we need mm -hmm. you to pay for this and then you know unfortunately no I, you can't and this is the season I'm sure we all feel it the end of the year letters. Yeah. Like how many have you received in your mail? Uh, several. Yeah. And you're not going to support them all. And so you're doing this kind of, uh, everyone Triage. has their own system. Yeah. For how they're going to evaluate and decide where they're going to give their little pot of money. Doesn't mean that you wouldn't like to support them all. But if they're only asking for money, I only have so much. I recently met a uh, guy who's going to be on the show in a few months who moved to town and uh, had, had done well, mm -hmm. uh, retired here. 
and kind of instantly when new money shows up in town, it, everybody's I'm radar sure. lights up, <laughs> right? We know this. It's their small towns. So, a oh, new face. Who's that guy? And he's got a nice car. Yeah. Uh, and he pretty quickly found lots of inquiries. Support this, support this, support this. And he said, you know, I didn't, I didn't to your point, he didn't want to peanut butter himself <laughs> and felt, what can I, how can I make an impact? Mm -hmm. I want to make an impact. Mm -hmm. uh, and spent five years studying what was the thing that he could affect most as a single human being on the planet. Fun. What did he find? I'm going to save that for a show. Oh, nuts. <laughs> That's not fair. Well, tune in Tune in to that episode in three or four months. Can we just but cut this one now and go straight to that one? Yeah. I was, I w but I was impressed with the diligence which yeah. he went about that is studying that thing and did that and presented to me a week ago. What a privilege, though. What a, what a wonderful gift to be able to do that, to have the the time and the space and the ability to be very thoughtful and mindful and what he must have learned on that journey like I'm, i can't wait i want to come back I'm, for that I'm one i'm shocked <laughs> when the at the depth and one of the keys he doesn't watch tv doesn't listen to the news doesn't read doesn't doesn't any of that he studies and uh, th and that's what happens when you do that you can focus on one thing for a long time and go do what it needs uh so notwithstanding that and thinking about um, the role of business in the nonprofit world, let's transition now to what you're doing now. You're here as the CEO of? Spokes, Resources for Nonprofits. I love that. <laughs> and uh, tell me... Th th tell me a bit of... I want to hear a little bit about that at the front end, but I want to understand because it's resources for nonprofits what's your take on the difference between a, a nonprofit organization and a for-profit organization uh, well I, essentially nonprofits are mission focused mission driven okay. as opposed to profit focused or profit driven and um, they have to serve a public benefit okay that's part of why they exist uh, and there's actually I have a list there's 10 different Really, major differences between okay. the two, and the way that their you know ownership is different, executive power rests with the volunteer board in a nonprofit versus with the executive or C-suite of the right. corporation. Um, but at the root, it is an organization that's owned by the community it serves, mm. driven by its mission, and it is allowed to be profitable. But any profits it has, it does not redistribute or share with employees or shareholders, it has to be reinvested into the organization, into serving the public. And if it ever dissolves, its assets need to go to another charitable organization with a similar mission. So that's really a difference around ownership, assets, and leadership. How is it, so you're, are you the only support organization up there in, in yes. the northern part of the 805? Mm -hmm. And how, what's the reach of your organization? Well, uh, we're, so we're mainly committed to the San Luis Obispo County community, although we feel a great affinity for Santa Maria. And mm, so we do sure. reach into the Santa Maria community. Kind of a too. bedroom community for you, isn't it? A bit? Well, I don't know. I mean, Santa Maria is a really unique community yes, in and is. of itself. And it's bigger now, if I understand correctly, than San Luis Obispo and South Santa Barbara. Right. Um, and it has a long and proud history. It, it, it is its own culture. Um, 
and yet I think I think Santa Marians maybe feel they obviously feel their own sense of uh, culture, but I think they feel a connection with San Luis Obispo. I think there's highly agriculture. San Luis Obispo right. is highly, not so much so for South Santa Barbara. I think there's probably more similarities to the two. So I, and I think there's something geographically about that grade. Somehow it's easier to go north of San Luis Obispo <laughs> than south of Santa Barbara. Yeah, right. So I think there's just more connection and there's kind of a natural bleed. Yes. But I don't want to assume, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, put it out there that somehow that we are a Santa Maria organization and you know we're, we're working to support that community we're working to find ways to be more valuable to them it is its own unique nonprofit environment it is its own unique community and um, I don't want to try to lump them all together I don't think that's fair why do you think there's such a high concentration of nonprofits in your area in my area I think it's because there is a tremendous activist tradition mm. Within oh. San Luis Obispo. And I think it stems from the university, and I think it also stems from the religious community. Really? Now, mind you, I have not studied this, unlike your other podcast guests you'll have in a couple months. <laughs> um, but I do know uh, that my father told me when he was growing up in San Luis Obispo area, San Luis Obispo would be the place you would come to start your own religious organization. You know, you're part of a mainstream I've congregation. I've not heard that down in LA or San Francisco and you're not enjoying or agreeing with whatever doctrine might be put forward at the moment and so you came up here and maybe started a new community or something of that nature which we do have a remarkable number of religious organizations religious nonprofits in our area and so whether or not that played a big role because you also had the Cal, you know Cal Poly and an activist tradition that comes out that's just part of any university town right, right? sure and and then what I see anecdotally is that there's a real sense of community pride and ownership. So in our town, if you see a problem and you don't like it, you just grab some friends and you fix it and you create a nonprofit to do it. Form a committee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, the result of that is that our nonprofit community is large. Maybe we don't uh, know the exact count, but over 1,500. And most what? of them, yeah, and most of them are very small grassroots nonprofits because there isn't a lot of funding available in our area. I was area. just going to say, right? I mean, we're, we're back to, so So let's take 1,500 nonprofits that are looking to the community for their sustenance. Mm -hmm. And then 98% of the community that could provide sustenance are solopreneurs. Just scraping by to make it themselves, right. I will. I have said many times that I'm not confident that it's sustainable. It doesn't sound like it. And so many of our nonprofits might be all volunteer run or have one staff person, part-time executive director, and operating budgets well under $200,000. And yet, they do phenomenal work, hmm. I, I have to say. Disproportionate to what their operating budget is. Absolutely. Right. I mean, uh, for example, um, Pacific Wildlife Care is all volunteer run, and it's amazing how many animal rehabilitations they do per year. You know, it, it's just... But all with volunteers. I mean, they have to pay for a vet tech. But right. they do amazing work. And um, I think there's some of the other smaller groups that are dealing with issues around addiction, for example. These are volunteers who will go and pick someone up in the middle of the night who needs help. They're, they're not institutionalized because they are smaller. They're, they're, m they're more present. They're, they're more connected with their clients. And they catch the people that would fall through the safety nets that we all expect our government 
to have in mm-hmm. place for us. Mm-hmm. So I, I worry sometimes when people disregard a smaller nonprofit because sometimes the very best, the very most critical work is being done by this very small organization. If you committed mission-driven Nimble. Folks. Nimble, nimble and not over uh. overloaded with bureaucracy of paperwork and 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 procedurals and no they can get stuff done yeah and sometimes the big organizations oh golly i i, I should say this um <laughs> but the ones no one's listening know, so <laughs> it's fine <laughs> only the people in caracas yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh the big organization when you when an organization is really financially stable has a really healthy endowment or some really healthy federal contracts there is a problem with complacency, and they don't mm-hmm. innovate. They don't. They don't uh, they the revise their programs as efficiently as a smaller nonprofit that's very closely connected with this client and this family. And there's an immediate need, and they have to respond to it. There's not the system to Patrick's point about bureaucracy that they have to move through to make changes to be more responsive. So sometimes, I don't. I, you know, there are a lot of funders out there who will say, we'll only fund an organization with a million-dollar operating budget. And I feel like that's a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because you could help one of these one of these organizations that has proven very successful grow into that. Yeah. And you could be the, you could be the changing money for that. Or maybe not grow into it. Maybe right. they always will be small, but they're still vital right. and effective. Spokes as a support organization, how big are you? Very small. We're one of those grassroots nonprofit organizations. We have uh, three staff people. Our operating budget hovers right around the $250,000 mark. And yet, I don't really have an intention to grow the organization. It's not, for me, it's not about, I mean, I, we want to grow our membership. We want to serve our membership well. There might be some growth required in that. But our goal is to remain nimble and responsive. What's the mission? To help empower nonprofits to achieve their missions. That's our mission. But it essentially, it's to help organizations do the good work they want to do. To um, It's tough. It's tough running a nonprofit. It's tough being a board member. Really, the people we serve are board members primarily. Oh. You Not the executive director or the someone who it's... We certainly... The executive staff, absolutely. But again, because many of our local nonprofits are very, very small, they might be all volunteer run. They might only be the board. You can have a nonprofit with no staff, but you can't have a nonprofit without a board. Hmm. And board members legally cannot receive compensation. So they're all volunteers. And they all have other jobs. They have very full lives that they're trying to meet other obligations. And then they choose to give of themselves to spend a couple hours every month leading this nonprofit organization, doing this work on behalf of the community. And they most likely come to the work because they're really passionate about about the mission, right? Yeah, yeah. But the fact is... There's a hundred, or sorry, 1.78 billion dollars of revenue going through the nonprofit sector in the United States every year. That's untaxed, right? And we know that our elected officials are in our capitals trying to balance their budgets, and they know that there are some bad apples in the nonprofit sector that are not fulfilling that public trust, that that commitment to serve the community, as we all agreed. And so they're ratcheting up compliance standards Mm. and their scrutiny of the sector. So now. Running a nonprofit as a board member requires a lot of these administrative tasks and compliance tasks that they may not understand or haven't received training for, and frankly, can be cumbersome. And so we're here it's to make no that no longer part. fun. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's really that's terrible, right? Because we don't right, want burnout. Right, right, we right. want we want people who will do this throughout their lifetime. It's critical. To our, none of us want to live a community without nonprofits, and we can't have them without board members willing to volunteer and give their time. And who have to make sure that these organizations are being well run. So Spokes wants to be the answer. We'll help you do 
all of that boring administration stuff. Because if you got 10 nonprofits in a room and listed the 100 things they need to do for the year, probably 85 of them would be administrative related and they'd all be the same. Hmm. Right. So right. let us give you the tools. The yeah. Let us bridge that piece for you so, so you can do the important part. Become a member of Spokes and then they pay some fee which offsets some expense that they might have of doing it themselves? Uh, well, kind of. Kind of, yeah. So organizations join Spokes, a nonprofit will join Spokes, and then everyone within their organization, all the board members, all the staff, all the volunteers become members of Spokes. And then they can participate in classes. We have ongoing. We have a we have a set of um, standards that we're training everyone towards. So, another point I need to make is that I believe we're moving to an era for accreditation for nonprofits, and that's just Leslie talking. Nice. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I I think as a what government. What does that mean? Well, we do it for our hospitals. We do it for our universities. It's basically mm-hmm. a set of. Uh, it means that this group is meeting a set of standards, operational standards, that but we can have confidence that. They are deserving of our tax breaks and our donations. Don't they already have to do that, though, to get the 501c3? Mm-mm. They have to file for it, but there's no one vetting it regularly, which is what accreditation would be. You would file for accreditation. Oh. You would show evidence. Yes, we are doing everything you say we have to do. And then every three years or so, we have to refile or re- become re-accredited. 501c3, mm. correct me here, because, of course, this is your field. But but once you receive the status, then it's just kind of as long as you keep filing your paperwork on the regular, there's no kind of there's no touchback to confirm that your mission statement is still being followed mm. as long as your paperwork is straight. Yeah. You're a five hundred one C three forever. That's right. Unless the and and sometimes an audit's triggered and sure, sure. things of that nature. But, but generally not, no. But there's no but like in a university setting, my experience with an accreditation board has been that they come in on, on a regular mm-hmm. basis and they bring in um, peer evaluators, so people who do the same kind of work that you're doing to evaluate the way in which you're running, make recommendations about mm-hmm. how to improve the system that you're having. And what that does is is that maintains, like you're saying, we know that that an institution that has an accreditation rating is is we can just it's a shorthand. We know that they have an emergency plan in place, that mm-hmm. their their boards have been vetted, that their all of their faculty maintain a status of such and such and such. And this, of course, inside of the nonprofit world, I would imagine, would be wonderful to have that that kind of that that comfort in knowing that if I'm going to give a gift to mm-hmm. a certain nonprofit and it's accredited through the board that accredits nonprofits. That means it's been looked at very closely by people that I trust. Right, absolutely. Like a, a stamp of approval. Yeah. And that doesn't exist. It doesn't, no, it does exist, just not owned by the government. There are some um, self regulating accreditation programs that already exist. One of which is the Standards for Excellence, uh, which is was created out of the Maryland Association of Nonprofits and is nationwide. And it is the one on which, the one that I'm using currently. And so they have 66 benchmarks that need to be met mm. to be to show evidence that you are following best practices in nonprofit management. And so we train at Spokes against all of those benchmarks. And you know, I don't know what standards are going to be required someday. I don't even know if this is going to happen in our lifetime. But I want our nonprofits to be ahead of that curve. Mm. So when it happens, mm-hmm. they're already operating with best practices. And in the meantime, by employing those and implementing those best practices, they become higher functioning more powerful nonprofits. So it's a win-win for everyone. Called best practice for a reason. Yeah, and I I think it's really important for board members too. Again, you're going to give all this time to this organization and you want to feel like you're doing a good job. You know, and so this having these benchmarks to say, here's what's required to be able to show them what they need to do and then help them do it, they can feel really proud of the work they're doing and they can share it with peers, I hope, at Spokes that, again, I feel people who do this work will do it throughout their lifetime. So I hope to capture them and, and help build their skill sets in the context of one organization that they can then carry with them wherever their life takes them, right. wherever they volunteer again. 
Let's talk about being a board member. Uh, I had 20 years ago, uh, we had a nonprofit in town called Scamp. I don't know it. A, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it's it was got to include animals. Does it include animals? It, uh, it should have. <laughs> Scamp, <laughs> Scamp stand, stood for the South Coast Alliance of Media Professionals. Oh, oh. man. <laughs> and it was uh, the community college's um, digital arts program said for us to continue getting the funding, we have to show that there's a direct need in the community mm -hmm. that we're f meeting with media arts. Mm -hmm. And I was running a computer animation company at the time, Wavefront, and they came to me and said, could you help us find the people in the community that are actually involved in hiring or being employed? And so we did that. And uh, as a result of forming that organization we learned you know so many different things about what it's like to have a nonprofit and run a nonprofit and do all of that well one of the guys we, we had a, a meeting and I brought people together let's let's learn and he moved to Santa Barbara and he joined a hundred boards what? over a five-year period and he built a social network if you will a, a peer network of board members could imagine the hundreds and hundreds of people that sure. you. It's pathological. It was I diabolic. Think it's been a conflict it was, of interest, but yeah. I won't go into that. Yeah. It, <laughs> was, it was just interesting how he became so well connected as a result of doing that. Um, I'm thinking now back to the solopreneurs or, or the person who's listening to the podcast right now. Uh, so they. To be involved with a nonprofit, they could give money. They could mm -hmm. give their time, just go volunteer some time on a, a weekend cleanup, beach cleanup, mm -hmm. or they could, as you said, put some cards in the office or, or whatever. Being a board member. Excellent. And tell what are the three things that, if I'm thinking about, I, I want to be a board member. Like that would be a, because you're, you're a leader, there's governance, there's advocacy, there's all, because I've sat on, Plenty. What are the three uh, sales points, if you will, uh, if you're recruiting someone to be on a board? What are the like the three that work the best? Okay. Well, I have a couple points. So one, I want to make a point that not just the owner could be a board member, mm -hmm. but I also want to put a pitch out there that. I know succession planning is really hard for a small non right. or a small business right. because you you can't have a, a bunch of middle managers. You can't afford that. Board membership is a great way to help build the skill sets of someone within your organization oh. who might have potential for taking a leadership role because you aren't going to give them your budget. You maybe can't afford to hire an employee for them to supervise. But in a board member capacity, they wow. have the ability to deal with risk management and insurance issues, deal with HR, uh, deal with budgeting and in the safety of a group of a governing yeah, body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a wonderful. I that you know I, I really see the relationship between the corporate sector and the nonprofit sector as being very mutual, and we we forget that. I think everyone looks right, at the nonprofits right, always with right. their hands out, but there are real opportunities. And and having a fabulous board member is one of the greatest gifts you can give a nonprofit. So right. just want to make that pitch. It can okay. be either the owner or someone that they'd like to groom Th for a leadership I, position. That's a huge, you just made a very huge point, right? And then I think the other thing about board recruitment that it is um, misconstrued or misunderstood is that it is very flattering to be invited to a board. And so there, I think that often is the way it goes, right? It's you admire so-and-so and they sit on a board and they invite you and you say yes. But I'd really like 
for board members and for nonprofits who are recruiting board members to look at this position, although it is not compensated, it deserves the same vetting and the same consideration as a professional position. And there should be an interview process. I actually often will use the analogy of dating. You know, there needs to be a couple dates and there needs to, you wouldn't marry someone on the first date. You, you need to get to know each other and figure out if you're a good fit. And so what makes a really good board member a really good board member and organization relationship is the board member has to have a passion for the mission. That is paramount because you will work hard for this organization and you have to want to, you have to really believe in the cause. So if anyone accepts a board position because their boss asked them to, and not because that mission is important to them, that's not going to work. And then um, you need to be very clear on what the expectations are for that board. Every, every, board, every nonprofit has different expectations for their board members. Um, what does it mean for meeting attendance? Because if you're only going to get together a couple times a year to do right. the business of the organization, you need to be at those meetings. Yep. So what is that meeting schedule and can you make it? And if you can't, don't be, a, and it's not a good fit. Um, so it's all those expectations that might be, there's a financial expectation. Most likely every board member needs to give at some level. Every organization will have different rules for what that is. There might be volunteer expectations. So upfront, just like you would with any other job. What is the job description? What are my responsibilities? What are you hiring me for? That same type of questioning needs to happen. Yep. It needs to be given. Do you find that that doesn't happen? Yes. It's that's why you're. That's why yes, we're that's why talking. I'm so adamant exactly. about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, In right. fact, I was going to say to any of your listeners, anyone who ever wants, I have, uh, I have the basic. I have ten questions and more that need to be asked of or an presented. incoming board member. Yeah, I have it to give to board members. Anyone looking for a board position, but then I give it to nonprofits too to say you need to be able to answer. All. You need to. Mm-hmm you know, present them with these answers because they bring, may not know to ask. You're bringing them in and they're going to have some influence, mm-hmm. good or bad, but they're going they to have be, a vote. Yeah, yeah. You've brought so them into a, vote, a board. Right. Yeah, you're asking them to come and participate in the leadership of, a, of, of your very precious entity. And, and, and yeah, that... It's, uh, a, it's a big job. And folks don't know, I'll ask you guys, if a lawsuit comes to a nonprofit, who gets named? Ooh. Let's say an employee harasses, a supervisor harasses their employee. And it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Does the, does, are you leaning towards the board is named? The board is named. Oh, my. The board carries the legal liability. Do they have DNO insurance? They ought to. That's one question number one. I was <laughs> going to say that was number three. Right. What's D- check D- it. DNO? Oh, sorry. Buzzword. Bing, yeah. bing, 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 bing. bing. Yeah. Uh, director and officers. Um, when we recruit for our board, uh, it's not necessarily the first question, but it's it's in the top three. Do yeah. you have, you know, do you have? adequate dno insurance it's eno insurance in the corporate world for anyone who's trying to make the connection but mm-hmm. same idea and you would be amazed how many members board members accept a position without ever asking that question and put their personal assets at risk or who how many minor um uh minor nonprofits are created you know and without any kind of understanding that they that the board and the are at risk yeah because i know i know several friends that have nonprofits uh that that are kind of you know small ones that they use as kind of like a a, a side entity to to do various different kind of uh, programming and they i yeah that's the kind of language that you never hear coming out of it yeah yeah it's a real challenge in fact i would say we field an inquiry a week for someone wanting to start a new nonprofit organization. And so one of our other big values I think we bring to the table is helping them understand what they're really attempting to do and then understanding what their end goal is and is there another path they can take? Can they be a program of an already established nonprofit, at least for a little while, to pilot? You know, Because you always change your mind later and incorporate as a nonprofit. But so many folks will come to me and I'll say, well, great. I need to ask you, though, would you be willing, are you interested in opening a restaurant? 
And they look at me and they think, no, like, that sounds really hard. I wouldn't want to do that. I said, well, everything you would do for a restaurant, you would do for a nonprofit. Plus, you have additional compliance hoops you're going to have to jump. So it's going to be a little harder. Plus, you cannot own it. You're going to work really, really hard to build this organization. And it will not be an asset of yours that you can sell. You, If you decide to become an employee of the organization, you can be fired at any time by the board. And you have to forfeit all control exactly. uh, from the board level. Yeah. So Why you painted such an attractive picture <laughs> for us? Well, but I, everyone deserves to know the truth. But the, the beauty of it, there's always a solution. I just want mm. everyone to pick the solution to help them be successful. Mm. That's what's so important. That's why, that's why I think that is so valuable, is that I can be really honest and not just paint them this rosy picture that this is going to be easy, but help them understand what's going to really be required for them and then give them the tools to do it well and or point them to someone who can help them do it who's already established. So that person sitting there, they're passionate. They've got this mission. I'm gonna, this is, I've identified a community need that 15 other, other organizations had not seen, oh my gosh, and I'm gonna, I've got the will, the wit, the wisdom, I'm gonna do the work. And, and you could see this gladiator spirit in mm -hmm. them, right? It's like, it's oh my gosh. My favorite thing about my job. I, I work with that. people who have that in them all the time. In every great gladiator story, though, there is a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And many, many dragons yeah. in the nonprofit world. What's the biggest dragon? Well, the biggest dragon is uh, funding. I mean, the nonprofit model, think about this. Our sales are the hardest sales pitch you'll ever make. You're, you are dependent on donated funds. And to use the restaurant again, if you have a restaurant, you can pretty much guarantee in the next 24 hours someone's going to get thirsty or hungry and walk into your restaurant and buy something from you. And it's going to be a very clear and equitable transaction. You give me money, I give you food. Fundraising is nobody needs to give their money today or tomorrow, and you will give me money, and I'll give you back a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. And yet you have to, that's the only way you can fund your programs. I mean, it, that is right. the hardest. You have nothing to it's, sell. You know, even like we're in the budget period now, many nonprofits are on the calendar fiscal year because of end of the year giving is a big mm -hmm. source mm -hmm. of their revenue. So we're all building our budgets for the next year. And unlike a business that has done a year and has profits, they, they have a pool of money they know they can count on and they can project how they want to spend it. A nonprofit starting from zero. So we're forecasting what we hope to bring in right. and what we believe we need to spend and all year long, we're dancing to make sure that those two, the top part of our budget is matching up with the bottom part of our budget. And if it's not, making adjustments, sometimes very immediately, cutting this, making, going to make a special ask, it's very stressful. <laughs> different, a totally different type of budget management process than a for-profit. So I would say it's always the funding that's the hardest part. 805 Connect kind of lives balanced between those worlds oh, because really? it's, it's a nonprofit project run by my company but it's not a nonprofit. I see. So it's a project it's a community service project that we're doing and we're we've enlisted the support of people uh, throughout the region who have freely given but it's not nonprofit. If they need the tax benefit of mm -hmm. giving a gift that I need to that we can run that through the Santa Barbara Foundation. So that's Oh, I I've see. Done so that. you have a fiscal sponsor. That yeah, I have Santa a fiscal sponsor. So I've done that twice. And most of the time it's, you know, they they get some the, the thing they get out of it is actually not the warm it is kind of warm fuzzy in terms of contributing to an effort that's around economic vitality our mission is catalyst for conversation to improve economic vitality in the region but i'm i'm getting all of i'm, I'm asking all these questions are kind of coming from that place as well uh, just to understand that unfortunately 
We're at the end of our time. Oh my we, gosh! Just successfully, that we're was at the so end of our fast. Time. Yes, thank yeah. you. Right? Yeah. Just it went, and, and I would like to. We we ended on that dragon, right? The, yeah. All those dragons, but um, there's a, at the end of those when the dragon has been slayed. Tell me, give me just well, let's just finish with a story of a recent story of someone who came in, and they they wanted to start something, and you have high hopes for them. They've just you just can see the eye of the tiger in them. Well, okay. Well, quickly, I want to say for every dragon, there's a white knight. That okay. is, that is, I do firmly believe that. I think we operate too much from a place of scarcity. And not every donor is going to fund you, but there will be donors. If you're doing good work, people will support you. So I think that is important for every nonprofit leader to understand and to hold on to. Um, there are so many success stories. You know, I see these pictures like flashing through my right, mind. Right, right, But just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, I saw Sister Teresa Harpin, who's with Restorative Partners, the new 501c that's being formed to address um, of the offender community, those who have been in our jail and juvenile systems and are being released into the community. And we want to you know, break the cycle of recidivism. And the work she's doing, she's, this, uh, she's a nun, started doing it out of her order. It was part of her calling to do this sort of work. And she has made so many partnerships and made such inroads with the the men and women in our jail systems. They have, they have such trust and faith in her. And she has folks coming to do yoga classes and workplace and housing solutions that she's being she's managed to pull together. She hadn't figured it out. It's amazing. And so they're mm. just now forming their 501c3. Mm. They're just now moving it out of the order, uh, and out of her convent, and, and sorry, not her convent, her religious order, to become a standalone 501c3. And I have such hope for the work she's going to do. It's it's going to be phenomenal, and it's a community that we're not thinking a lot about. And yet, here we have, you know, California Men's Colony in our right. community, and we right. don't—I don't right. think our local residents understand that when you're done serving your time, you kind of just get dropped off, and you've been totally yanked out of your support systems. I mean, you might have been sent here from San Diego. You know what I mean? And how do you get back if those relationships have broken down while you've been in jail? What, what else are they going Huge. to do? What other choices are they going to make unless there's a solution like restorative partners there to say, hey, here's another option for you? Makes me think of the same problem facing our vets. Yeah, well, I was going to say the back, other ones were the vet ones. It's right. a, we're, apparently our county is receiving one vet a week wow. uh, that's coming home here, or, and, and many of them are homeless, and we don't think of them as homeless because they're couch surfing on their friends' couches, but they're so trauma. There's a group up... Um, actually in San Luis Obispo that's doing work. Uh, it's the Sun Care Foundation. It's their, uh, their, they have this Happy Farms animal training mm-hmm. program, and they're training service dogs for veterans because they have horrible nightmare situations. Mm-hmm. These right. dogs are right. trained to come and turn on the lights for them. They no recognize kidding. when their owner is having a nightmare, and to be comfort, they know to go <sighs> then and put their wow. hand. And wow. it's true, and I have a, we actually have two coaches that we work with um, who work specifically with veterans, and she was explaining to me, you know, back in World War II, you would be fighting a war, and then you'd be put on a ship, and so you'd have this decompression period, mm. and you would be with oh. people who've been through a common experience. Oh. Oh. Now, you get put on an airplane, and then within a matter of later. hours, you yeah. come back, and you come back, by the way, to a country that is not in war with you. We were making sacrifices along with our soldiers right. back in World War II, now you come back to everyone focused on the Kardashians, you know what right. I mean? And it just feels, you just feel like an alien. Like mm-hmm. this does not mm. make sense. You lived a totally different life than I have. All right, Patrick, I want to find someone and have a conversation about this. Oh, I've got two people. Good. 
Excellent. Thank you. Nice. Go, thank. Please we'll introduce in. us because I, 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 it's a, it's a huge issue and uh, wor- worthy of conversation and worthy of attention. Yeah. Leslie, thank you. My pleasure. Always. This was this was really. I, I knew it would go really quick. It went faster, and we took a little more time, and I think it was worth it. No, no, no. Please, no. This was. We never, as I said, never know where the journey is going to lead us. At the end of it, though, one of the things we know is that a, a snappy title was about marketing and branding. Uh-huh. A, a great title for this is going to have this episode when it shows up in the Twitterverse or shows up as a post. Someone said, hey, got to go listen to this, and it has a title. Um, we know how important that is, and so we reserve that wonderful challenge for you. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. How did I tee that I'm up? I'm not huh? sure. If that's yeah. am I am I grateful? What, what should we What should we call our conversation? I don't know. I kind of can't remember everything we talked about. I love when when you bring on super competent people who are professionals in their field and have done a lot of hiring and presentation, and and interviewing, and then and then you stump them with one question. Yeah, <laughs> it's really a hard one, especially because it. I do feel like it was such a a winding conversation. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm really stumped. Do I have to do it at this moment? Am I allowed yeah. to come back to you? I no. have to do it right now. Yeah. Okay. Remind me of all the things we talked about. We talked about so corporate philanthropy. We right. talked about how businesses can how help to raise money, being a good money. neighbor, peanut butter approach, uh, the mission driven, how to serve public service. So many nonprofits being. I like the activist thing, the religions, community pride, solving problems. Everything you didn't know about nonprofits. There you go. See. We, we also have, have found a lot of success in making them sweat. Thank and th- you. That you let the guest, the guest at first will say, no, I don't think I can do that. Then the guest will say, the second response is, can I get back to you? And then the third <laughs> response is. And I always say no. And then you the should third, start having bets. Yeah. And then the third response is like, okay, I really have to do this. And, <laughs> then, and then the fourth is, okay, I may be this. And then they always come up with a really great thing. But I'd like to have something with spokes in it, but. Well, the spokes will be in there. All right. But I was just thinking like reinvent the wheel or. I don't know, but pet- oh. powering, you know, powering our nonprofits or peddling or... See, now now you have 50. I know. See. see, now 50. Is well, so I, I haven't thought of a good one, though. Yeah. But, well, uh, but the other thing that will happen is is it will hit you in the car. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> and then, and then Am al- I allowed to call you? And you then are. also, also you, you will are. never be stumped with this question ever again. <laughs> you will be thinking oh. at the beginning of the conversation, now what are we going to call this conversation? Well, I, I will say, I don't know that marketing is my strength. Management is, so... <laughs> I really want to call someone else. What do you think it should be? And uh, please do that because we'll post this over the holiday break. Um, we record on Fridays, record a bunch of shows, and then we'll we'll dribble them out. Uh, so you you get a little bit of uh, executive uh, dispensation. Thank you. I could say. use it. There you go. Well, I want to thank you again, Leslie. How do people find thank you on the internets? www.spokesfornonprofits.org. And F O R. Yes, everything's spelled out. S-P-O-K-E-S-F-O-R-N-O-N-P-R-O-F-I-T-S. That makes for a long, I know. long I know, business. but Spokes was taken. So, <laughs> yeah. And we really like the name Spokes because it, we think it. it was a metaphor for the work we do, right? Of We're course. here to help strengthen and repair the spokes of your organization might be broken and help you avoid reinventing the wheel. So I'm not willing to give up Spokes. We, <laughs> we have to work with it. We, we, there was something there, avoiding reinventing the wheel. Yeah. yeah. So I want to thank you very much. And thanks again to California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pull String Press. Uh, we just get great conversations here. Thank you, Patrick. And Cielo24, who provides the searchable captions for our show. 
The 805 Connect project is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. We want to thank them as well. If you'd like more information on how you might be a, one of those people, go to 805connect.com and check us out. Now, Patrick, uh, the other way that people can help is... Well, okay, this is every week I, I have to think about how you could help us, and this is the way you could do it right now. I want you to go and learn a new song that you've never sung before, and I don't care if you're a bad singer. I want you to learn how to sing this song, and then I want you to call your mom, and, and the moment she says hello, I just want you to start singing that song. I love and that. And when you get to the end of that song, you tell them that uh, you heard it here on 805 Podcast and that, uh, and that they should tune in and listen as well. So I'm that's a I'm great idea. I am so going to do that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Call somebody else's mom. Call anybody's mom <laughs> with a new song that you've learned just for them because this is a season when people love to have songs sung to them. I love it. And and so all of us, uh, we've started a phenomenon, and this will be an internet meme <laughs> of uh, sing, t- sing, instead of call your mom, sing to your mom. Sing uh, your mom. I would actually, I would love to hear from you personally. I run into people all the time who listen to the show, fans of the show, and they tell me what they like and people that I we should talk to. And so if you have a person you think would be great on the show, would you'd love to hear a deeper conversation with them, let me know, mark at 805connect.com, and uh, we'll take it from there. So until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. 